Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter Do Death. So in these strange times of uh, isolation where we can't meet and uh, we're about 120, 130 miles apart, recording this over Zoom, we thought it would be a good idea to share our common interest in true crime by starting our own true crime podcast. And it gives us a good reason to spend some time together. Absolutely. (laughs) And um, yeah, exactly that. It gives us a reason to talk about something more exciting than what the weather is or the tv programs that we've watched because there's not a lot else going on is there so actually it gives us something else to do that an activity we can do together 130 miles away from each other that's a bit more enjoyable than just talking about day-to-day life yeah yes and all the ups and downs as you say of day-to-day life so uh, yeah we both have an interest in true crime watching on television quite a lot absolutely Uh, i think you started the true crime revolution in the family to be honest when um we went to america and you were watching the id channel in america and um kind of piqued our interest in all the quite frankly ridiculous cases that um, were being shown on american true crime tv yeah and and so many of the programs that you get on the id channel and uh crime and investigation are very american there are british programs on there but the, the majority yep. are American and a lot of podcasts are very American centric. So what we're going to try and do in our research and conversations are talk about murders and other terrible crimes that have happened in Europe, in Europe, in Great Britain, Ireland. Yeah, and, and, I mean, there's plenty of them aren't there? and some really quite horrific ones yeah, um, that are just as, as worthy of the screen time and the airtime as some of the American ones but yeah the American ones I think especially so many true crime podcasters live in America I think my most of my favorite ones are all in fact all of my favorite ones are all American based ones so they're covering kind of obscure American cases where actually I'm hoping that we can give some airtime to some some well-known but then some less well-known obscure English and European cases. Crimes yeah so um, as there are so many true crime podcasts and programs out there I don't think we would have a clue whether or not any of the stories that we choose to research ourselves and, and talk about have ever been covered anywhere else. If they have, okay, but this is just our own take on it. And um, yeah, and, and of course, our research is done from material that's easily available to us, uh, well, <laughs> on the internet, basically. Yeah. So um, <laughs> there we go. So the crime I've got for, to talk to you about tonight, Phoebe. Um, uh-huh is sometimes referred to as the French Jack the Ripper case. Okay. And all my uh, information for this has come from a YouTube video, basically, which uh, I've transcribed because some of it is in French. And sort of... uh, Did you have to translate it? And, yeah, so uh, the YouTube video is Real Stories, the French Jack the Ripper. Uh, And it's also referred to on the Murderpedia uh, website as well which is there's some information on there as well. So so everyone's familiar, I think, with Jack the Ripper that um, stalked the streets of London in around about 1886 through to around about 1891, I believe. Yeah. But uh, 20 years before then, in Paris, there was a similar sort of set of crimes 
that had been going on. So um, the story starts in 1861, where it was noticed that there'd been an increase in the number of prostitute murders that had been going on. Uh, And many of these would have gone unnoticed because that sort of thing Mm. did go unnoticed in what would have been sort of Victorian era Paris, Um, except for the same MO, the same modus operandi was being used in all of these uh, in all of these cases. Um, The victims were all stabbed to death really quite viciously, their Mm -hmm. throats cut violently and quite often almost but not quite decapitating the victims, all of which, or nearly all of which were prostitutes. Working. Pretty brutal then. Pretty brutal. Yeah, lots of lot of blood by all accounts. A lot of blood. <laughs> and uh, and the witnesses describe the same man being seen with the prostitutes shortly before they were seen for the last time. Um, sort of a, a a working type person with brown hair, a dark goatee, pale eyes, and a demeanour described as worrying. Oh, what's a, what's a worrying <laughs> demeanour? <laughs> just, just the way he did himself, I suppose. So, um, so th- th- they think that there may be at least 10, 10 such murders uh, attributed right, to this okay. guy, um, possibly even more. But um, we're just going to have a look at four of, of them that sort of in the later, later period. Um, and unlike Jack the Ripper, we do find out who the killer is in this case. That was going to be one of my questions. Like, is there any suggestion that this guy just moved to London and just carried (laughs) on with what he was doing as actual Jack the Ripper? But we'll find out that that was, you know, impossible. Okay, (laughs) there we go. (laughs) So we'll pick the story up. Um, So so they noticed that these murders were starting in around about 1861. But we'll pick the story up three years later in 1864, April the 15th. So a prostitute by the name of Julie Robert, who was 36. Excellent. She was, <laughs> she, was uh, she, she lived on the first floor of 14 Rue Saint-Joseph in Paris, which mm-hmm. looking at the map, these, these streets are very much in the centre of Paris, sort of in the area. If you drew a line between Sacre Coeur and the Eiffel Tower, sort of in the middle there, so just oh, okay. Um, she was she was found um, with her throat badly cut, almost decapitated. Only the spinal column itself was holding the head to the rest of the body. So all the yeah. the flesh and all the other everything else that's in your neck had all been severed. She was covered in bruises and her clothes were torn and there were there was blood absolutely everywhere, including in a bowl, a bowl of water that was by found by the side of the body, which they oh, believe the goodness. killer used to wash his hands after the uh, after the crowd. Wow. Yeah, so um they discovered that um her purse was missing, so they suspected that theft was the was the motive. Um mm-hmm. But they found, the police found that there were 1,300 francs in, well, yeah, hidden in a linen cupboard between sheets and things like that. So if it was oh, theft, yeah. then the, the robber hadn't been particularly 
thorough in, in their search. So that was the first one um, that, that the lead police officer, a guy called Monsieur Claude, Monsieur Claude. Uh, <laughs> Monsieur Claude picked up on. Um, and by this time, he, he was because of the ones that happened since 1861, he was now looking for the perpetrator of the murders of now seven victims, Julie Robert being the seventh. And all of them have been killed in a similar fashion. A lot of stab wounds, head almost decapitated from the body. Um, so, yeah, so he realises... Maybe he didn't know the terminology in those days, but he is now looking for what we would now call a serial killer. And um, I don't think serial killers existed then, did they? I think it was very much a term that was kind of late seventies, maybe, or later, much later on, that was kind of coined. I think they realised that though that it, it was the same person doing these things because yeah. of the, because of the, the well, yeah, the way in which the murders are being done and. Um, and the way that these people were being found, and the, and the type of people that they were as well, which is which is okay. important. So the term serial killer is, in actual fact, defined by the FBI in the USA as someone who kills at least three people, but with a, a certain amount of time between each one, and that's what mm. that's what defines the difference between a serial killer and a mass murderer so if a lot of killings happen in a very short period of time that would be referred to as mass murder but uh, because there's a period of time like months or even years uh, between them but it's thought to be the same person then uh, then they'd be referred to as a serial killer Um, Mm -hmm. that's that's apparently what the FBI refer to it as and in fact there is a quite a long report that you can easily get hold of on on the internet at fbi.gov and if you look at the definition of serial killer uh, it may well tell you that uh so yeah there's a lot of research that's gone into all of this and uh, it could be interesting and i think the um yeah the um book mind hunter which the series is based on that was written by i can't remember his name i should know his name that the guy who is he called john something potentially who kind of was the sort of like holding character but in real life and their investigations into the serial killer that's supposed to be a good book we should put that on our reading list <laughs> things to yeah. read yeah that's a good idea also serial killers have a psychological motive quite usually they they need to kill to satisfy some sort of need a, a hatred of some particular aspect of society mm-hmm. um hatred of certain women and quite often men who have had a difficult relationship with their mother. I was actually just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think if you look back at other more recent serial killers that are very well documented quite often there, I think there's re- reference to uh, difficult relationships with with mothers. Mm. Um, and as well as that, there could be just uh, the, the sexual desire or the the exercise of power over someone who's vulnerable mm-hmm. so uh, so yeah it's quite interesting to to find out a, bit, a little bit more about what serial killers mm. yeah definitely 
isn't there like a disproportionate isn't there a disproportionate amount of serial killers who are born in November? Whatever. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's a thing. You, you with your uh, November birthday. <laughs> How's your relationship with your mother? <laughs> your son's relationship. With exactly. Your November, November birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Surrounded by serial killers, <laughs> potential serial killers. <laughs> So Julie Robert was uh, found murdered on April the 15th, 1864. About six or seven months later, on November the 6th, 1864, 5am in the morning, workers were passing number 11, Rue St. Marguerite. A couple of guys were walking past on their way to work early in the morning when they hear these gasping screams from a woman who seemed to be trying to cry out. Um, they 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 hear it, but they think it's just a drunk prostitute <laughs> mm-hmm. making noises. Um, as quite often, I believe there were quite a lot of noises around that sort of <laughs> time of the day or in the middle of the night from that area of the city, sure. um, where there were a lot of uh, street workers playing playing mm. around there. So. Uh, Anyway, a couple of hours later, around about seven o'clock in the morning, Monsieur Lebeau, uh, who is, well, is coming to the property and he sees blood on the windowsill of the first floor room, which belonged to um, a, a lady called Fleur Marg. Okay. Fleur Marg. And she lived in this apartment on the first floor with her two year old son. My goodness. Now, Monsieur Lebeau, who has come into the apartment, is her lover and he is also her pimp. So I guess he was coming to oh, okay. check up on trade or whatever for the night. So, But he sees his blood over the, over the windowsill and he runs up the stairs. The door's locked, but strangely, he finds the key on the floor, on the, sort of in the landing area. So he, he yeah. opens the door. Let's himself in, and he's just absolutely horrified to see a mass of blood everywhere. Uh, both Flora and her son, Henri, oh, no. are, are very much dead. So the entire scene covered in blood, both of their throats are slit, and Henri is particularly disfigured, which is, uh, oh, goodness. Which is awful. Um, both of them covered in stab wounds. Um, yeah. So again, they think it's the same person who's been carrying out the previous murders. Mm-hmm. And by looking at the scene, they actually, I mean, how much of this is, you know, how much has changed in translation over the years since this happened. But uh, by all accounts, by looking at the blood and where the blood was around the apartment, they could kind of work out the sequence of events that happened. Okay. So they deduced that Fleur was attacked in her sleep at oh. around about 5am. So this person must have come in into the, into the apartment um, at around about 5am, which is the time that these workers were passing. Um, and from the way the blood was, was found and the footprints that were left on the ground, which would be like bloody footprints on, on the floor of the apartment, the police worked out that she was stabbed she got out or she managed to get up from the bed and fall against the wall where she left a, a handprint a bloody handprint oh on my goodness. 
she got as far as the window. Um, no one could hear her screaming or, you know, calling out while she was actually in the apartment. Um, but when she got to the window, she was trying to call out. But because the first stab had actually damaged her vocal cords, she couldn't mm. make much sound. So that was mm. why um, the sound that the the workers heard was a sort of a bit indistinct. It wasn't like a proper scream. Okay. Because, of, yeah. God. That's a little bit gruesome, isn't it? That's pretty grim, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she got to the window, leaving blood all over the sill. But the, um, the noise of all of this going on was enough to wake the baby who was asleep in his cot. Because mm-hmm. when the killer, well, when the, yeah, when the, when the person who, broke into the apartment, heard the baby starting to cry. He, he turned away from Floor and uh, sort of set his attentions about the baby, the two-year-old. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, he just butchered this poor child to death. That's and the, he actually had five. The oh, Henri, Henri had about five stab wounds to his throat and neck um and his i guess if he was screaming out he was yeah he he thought he'd kind of silenced her didn't he but i guess if if the baby was crying out then that was gonna give his time away i should think that's what it would be yeah um and uh yeah and really damaged his face and everything it was it was truly horrific um anyway once once he killed Henri. The killer turned his attentions back to Floor. He dragged her by the hair back into the room and he continued to stab her in the neck and throat. And uh, so Henri had five stab wounds in his neck and Floor had three. So that uh, was pretty horrendous. Um, Monsieur Claude, the police detective, recognises this modus operandi, this this style of killing. Mm -hmm. And another witness by the name of Sophie, who is another prostitute, thinks that she actually had an encounter with what, what they believe to be the killer. That's uh, the evening before. So she oh. was um, confronted by him for business mm-hmm. or whatever uh, the, the previous evening. Um, and she described him as a client with a very worrying look. So I suppose that goes back to the worry. <laughs> whether that means look worried or whether <laughs> more like to be a scary look, I suppose, with these yeah. very dark hair features, but piercingly pale eyes. Mm-hmm. So she's a bit suspicious of him. And so she says, well, let's go to this cafe over here. So they, they go into a cafe. And um, when they sit at the table, she can see as he sort of leans over or whatever, that he's got this really large knife tucked inside his coat. Oh, wow. Okay. So she uh, makes some excuse and goes up to the counter of the cafe and explains this to the the cafe owner, who then lets her escape out the back way. Um, Wow. And this bloke realises that, uh, yeah, things haven't gone quite to plan. So he makes a rapid exit out of the cafe. So a bit more research by the FBI, as I was mentioning just now about prostitutes being very much targets for um, for these sort of murderers and people that mm. have this psychological need to kill. Um, FBI in the US discovered in their research that prostitutes 
are four times more likely to be killed by serial killers than Gee. than non prostitutes, should we say. <laughs> um that's that's a, that's high, isn't it? That's it's a... high, yeah, and I think it comes down to the fact mm-hmm. that these women are making themselves available, aren't they, by the very mm. fact that they're inviting, uh, yeah, inviting these encounters to happen. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Um, and there was, um, I was listening to a thing about the weepy voiced killer, and he was um, found guilty of killing. I can't remember how many, quite a lot of prostitutes. And they think that one reason that he targeted prostitutes is because of something that his mom had drilled into him about women being dirty and sinful and that sort of thing. And that's why he targeted them because of that kind of lifestyle that they'd chosen to live. And he felt that he needed to punish them for it. There's something about prostitutes and serial killers. There's a clearly... <laughs> Um, yeah. other, other serial killers, uh, Patrice Allegret, who is uh, who is another French serial killer, uh-huh. Henry Lee Lucas in the USA, uh, sorry in the USA, Gary Ridgway, also the Green River killer, who was a, yeah. who counted for something like forty nine murders in the Seattle region. Um, okay. They they all reported a deep hatred of their mothers, but they all targeted prostitutes as well um yeah so yeah interesting it is interesting these these serial killers that loathe their mothers very rarely if never actually attack their own mothers they always take it out apart from um ed kemper right okay who um well i think he kind of hated her but also had like a weird obsession with her and he um he beheaded her, didn't he, and did awful things to her um, unattached head. <laughs> Why, yes, that's true. I remember that one, yeah. I think he was at, he was the, um, in Mindhunter the series, and also in the book, was kind of their patient zero for a lot of it, and really the kind of gateway into people talking about serial killers and that sort of relationship with mothers and how that can influence what they decide to do. Okay. So anyway, um, just going back to to what Sophie had to say then. Um, mm-hmm. She was the one that escaped the clutches of this killer. So she um, she also described him as being dark hair with a beard and these shining eyes. Uh, but she also told police that he had a tattoo on his left arm, which said, Ne su un mauvais, and then a picture of a star, so born under an unlucky star, oh, was the uh, yeah, was the tattoo that uh, that he had. So this was another clue that the police could start to work on because tattoos first appeared in in Western societies and in Europe in the sort of the later half of the seventeen hundreds, the sort of um, okay. the middle of the eighteenth century. Um, it was very prevalent in the Pacific Ocean, in the Pacific Ocean sort of region, and became very much popular with sailors who, after they discovered this technique and they were stuck on boats for weeks and months at a time, they actually used it by way of uh, breaking up the boredom of um, wow. of actually tattooing each other, basically. Um, that was so cool! I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's kind of how it started, and it sort of moved to the to the. You know, to Western civilization and, and things then. So when it did come back into Europe, it was a trend that was picked up 
uh, yeah, by all sorts of groups, sort of male groups, basically. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah. So one of the other groups that this did um, take hold, oh, I'll start again. So one of the other groups that tattooing happened in was in the army as well as sort of in the navy as well. No, uh, okay. Notably, people that served in North Africa, again because okay. of the time they had, and, and in France spent a lot of time in North Africa back in the, back in that time because they well they sort of it was part of the French Empire, I guess, wasn't it? Part yeah. of North Africa. And, don't shoot me down if uh, I've got the history wrong there. <laughs> there was a lot of um, French well, um, activity in North Africa. <laughs> a lot of those places still speak French now, don't they? Or versions of French So, So they thought, for one reason or another, that the man with the born under the unlucky star tattoo had been in, in the army. Um, mm -hmm. It was pretty crude in those days. They, basically, they were tattooing each other with whatever they could get hold of. The inks were quite often made of of coal and charcoal to get the black, black colour. Um, mm. And the colour, so the red colours are actually made from grinding down bricks to get some like brick dust reds and things. Oh my to God. <laughs> a pigment colour. So it's very yeah. elementary. And, and the tattoos themselves were done with sometimes the needles or sometimes with fish bones or, um, or other slivers of bone as well, just to, to get the, the, yeah. uh, the ink deepen up under the skin um, or sometimes actually cut the skin and put the ink in and then it sort of heal up over it so a bit of sort of scarification type uh. so because of that it was thought tattooing was thought to be a sign of virility um, to be able to st stand the pain basically of going through this sort of <laughs> very crude technique wow uh, yeah it's like in um, Moana when they're giving that guy that tattoo using the like <laughs> the thing on the end of the piece of the wood and he's like screaming right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, and I think those sort of places that that, that I mean Moana is set in the Pacific. Yeah, in the Pacific. Uh, that's yeah, the sort of place that I guess, but I I know nothing, and I'm, maybe someone will tell us a bit more history about this. But um, if tattooing started in that part of the world, and that's where the sailors in that part of the world, the Pacific regions first saw it and sort of learned crudely how to do it and that's how it yeah. spread back to the to Europe that makes sense I just keep thinking about like Johnny Depp and Pirates of the Caribbean like covered in tattoos <laughs> it's uh, a pirate yeah. thing <laughs> when would that have been that was a... yeah that's that's probably before this isn't it is it late seventeen hundreds? I think Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, I mean they may have had been doing tattooing then. I suppose, yeah. But, um... I feel like we need to do some more research into the history of tattoos, but that's <laughs> that's, that's that's really interesting. I never even thought about this. So anyway, uh, Monsieur Claude, to remind you, the uh, the chief inspector on this case, um, mm -hmm. tries to match up this tattoo with any of, the, any of the felons that he's previously encountered. So whether or not um, they got a list of tattoos that people had got, they did, I, I don't know. It was, yeah, 
but they couldn't find anybody on their records that had got this born under an unlucky star tattoo. So yeah. here we are in um, 1864, in that year alone, two very, well, three, I suppose, if you include uh, the toddler, Henri, very gruesome murders. The killer is still at large, and Paris, especially in the sort of region around where the prostitutes work, are very, very nervous of what might be happening. Um, actually, in, in those days, prostitution wasn't illegal at all in Paris, but you were encouraged to register. So some prostitutes okay. were referred to as carded prostitutes. Oh, well, okay. And this meant that um, you actually registered with the town hall and the card had details on it of uh, your name, date of birth, and, and where you lived, and things like that. So, so if ever you were picked up or or found, then you'd have, <laughs> yeah. But also, it meant that the police knew about them, and and the authorities knew about these people, and so were looking out, looking out for them. Um, That's cool. Yeah, and that was legal. But other prostitutes, for well, I suppose reasons of. The, well, they just didn't want to declare the fact that they were prostitutes. Yeah. They didn't want to make it too obvious to people around them that they were prostitutes. And so these people didn't register. And as a result, they weren't known. And because of that, no one was really looking out for them as, as such. So if, if an unregistered right. or uncarded prostitute went missing, then maybe no one had noticed. But... Um, Right, okay. Interesting as well about the uh, mm. about that. So we're going to move on now, just over a year, to the 8th of January, 1866. Okay. And um, there is a block of apartments. On the second floor, an old 73-year-old man lives. On the first floor, a, a woman who is a prostitute by the name of Marie Baudou mm-hmm. lives there. And on the ground floor is the local police station. Convenient. <laughs> and this is at 54 Rue de la Ville Lavecque. Again, in that same sort of same sort of area of Paris. Okay. Now, this old man, he goes out most evenings and on his way back, he, he likes to keep an eye on, on Marie in, on the first floor. So as he goes up the stairs, he usually knocks on her door or calls in and says goodnight to her. And on this particular night, on the 8th of January, 1866, he stops to say goodnight. The door to the apartment is actually open, which he, he thought was a okay. bit strange. And as he goes in, he sees a man in the apartment he is just in the process of sort of adjusting his tie and his attire to okay put himself up in a, in a mirror he sees the old man and goes rushing out of the door and on the bed the old man finds marie Badou stabbed to death uh again virtually decapitated. Oh, no. so she is the 10th victim so again, the, mm-hmm. it appears that the same killer has has struck again. So anyway, Marie was the tenth victim, and then three days later, on the eleventh of January, 
a man calls at the studios of a Madame Midi, who is a widow and a painter, and she's got a small studio. He claims to be a framer, which is perhaps not okay. un, unusual in her line of work, because quite often our, our, a framer would come and frame a piece of her work or whatever. This man comes in. She doesn't really recognise him, but he says he's come to collect a tool that he thinks he left there the previous week. And she says, well, I don't think there's anything here. And from somewhere under his jacket or somewhere, he produces his pillowcase, which he then puts over the top of her head oh and goodness. starts to strangle her and, and grab her and everything. Um, his hand is around her mouth and she bites his hand really, really hard. Oh, and wow. he sort of yelps and, and everything. And it actually causes it to bleed. And and so it's he, his blood gets onto this, this pillowcase. Now, okay. the partition wall between her studio and next door is really, really thin. So the someone in the next door studio, a man in the next door studio, could hear all this commotion. So he rushes out of his studio and bangs on the door and nobody comes and everything. And he's shouting and shouting at, uh, at them to open the door. Um, he actually starts then calling down from the balcony into the courtyard below to the concierge to get help. Um, okay. At that point, um, Madame Midi's door does open and this man comes out really quite coolly, says, Madame Midi um, is not feeling very well. I'm going for a doctor. And he rushes down the stairs and she's calling out, stop him, stop him from inside the studio. And so there's a lot of commotion. Everyone's shouting, stop him, stop him. And there happens to be a couple of police constables in the street outside. They grab him and arrest him. Um, and as they tackle him to the ground, they find a very long-bladed knife under his jacket. As is being pretty the person they have caught is someone called Joseph Philippe. Okay. He fits the description: very dark hair, dark goatee beard. He's got the tattoo on his arm. Yeah. Um, they do a little bit of research into him. He was born in 1831. So so uh, October the 1st, 1831. So he's only at this stage, what, 34, 35, 34? Yeah, not And when they go to his rooms, they find lots of bloodstained clothing in the house and a purse that belonged to actually Marie Baudou. I don't think they ever found the purse that belonged to Julie Robert. Mm -hmm. but, um, they do find evidence that he has had something to do with these other victims. Stuff like that blows my mind. Like, he's calculated enough to kill these women and choose these women, but he keeps the clothes that have got their blood all over them. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, think to throw that away? <laughs> well, maybe that's, um, yeah, trophies. Or, or, or trophies, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And maybe he wasn't, well, quite thinking straight. Uh, we'll... <laughs> We'll come on to that in a moment. <laughs> um, yep, yeah, so um, they discover as well that he did serve in the army. He did his military service in Lille to start with. Okay. But during that time, he was arrested for stealing and he spent a year in prison in 1850-something oh. or other. Then we, after he spends his, his year in prison, the, the rules at the time were that anybody that 
that spent time in prison would then spend the rest of their military service serving in North Africa. Uh, so okay. He was in North Africa for a while, and that's probably where he got the tattoo from. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Um, it seems that he finished his army career, came back from the army in around about 1860. He went back to live with his parents and he just sort of did odd jobs, some on farms. I think his family was a farming family out, outside of Paris. And then okay. just sort of odd jobs. He didn't really have a much of a career as such. Mm-hmm. Just sort of jobs here and there. Anyway, so they've arrested him and they've got him in prison. And during his time in prison, he does try to commit suicide twice. And in the end, they put him on suicide watch. And they do that by putting another inmate in his cell with him. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. That sounds like a good plan. Well, I suppose get the other, another inmate to do the the job for him. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first time he tried to hang himself from his shirt, but the shirt broke or something. And the second time, I think okay. he tried to stab himself with, with some glass or something. So, right. Yeah. So anyway, they put him on suicide watch. And basically, he, he he's sort of, yeah, he's giving up on life now. Oh. <laughs> um, so this that was in January. By June, well, on June the 25th, his trial starts. Okay. Um, so, twenty fifth of June, he's eighteen sixty six. His trial trial starts, and he's tried just for the four murders that we've been talking about: Julia Robert, Flor Marg, Henry Marg, and Marie Baudou, mm-hmm. uh, and the attempted murder of Madame Midi, the the artist who he didn't actually kill. He's described as being quite handsome, but very heavily marked by smallpox scars. Okay. Um, other employers that he has been working for and the army that you know, he had a career with testify that um, he, he, he was it was all right. He was a good bloke. He, um, he was very affable, quite amenable, except for when he drinks. And when he, uh, drank, okay. he took on quite a different, uh, quite a different character. Um, right. the, yeah, the military described him as being good and reliable. Uh, of good nature until okay. he drank. Um, and at the trial, the prosecution didn't have an awful lot of work to do because uh, <laughs> yeah. it was obvious that <laughs> he was the perpetrator of this. But the defence, their their tack was that it was homicidal homicidal mania brought on by erotic epilepsy. Right. Um, okay. Now, the reason for this is because they put a lot of it down to alcoholism, which was actually brought about because of the use of absinthe. Okay. Now, absinthe, you've probably heard of, is a very strong spirit. Um, it's it's um, a bit aniseedy, I think, and made of other sort of botanicals. Mm-hmm. It actually uh, originated in Switzerland, became very popular in France. Um, but it is also extremely potent. It has a very, very high alcohol content, sort of 70% alcohol, if not more. Um, yeah. And back in those days, the 
the army would use it. They they would take it to places like well North Africa and other places, mm-hmm. both as a malaria um, deterrent uh, to stop oh, an anti-malaria type drug. Uh, but also they'd put it in water because the water wasn't really fit to drink. They'd put it in water and it was to like cleanse the water. I suppose okay. <laughs> a bit like wow. we're using spirit these days to clean our hands or whatever. Yeah, like yeah like drinking there. alcohol gel. Yeah. So you could probably use it as alcohol gel. It's 70% <laughs> alcohol. Yes, but I mean, there's many, uh, many sort of legends and stories associated with the use of absinthe, the green fairy. Um, yeah, I was thinking that Moulin Rouge, that's all set this sort of time in Paris, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and prostitutes. <laughs> and around about that time, it, it just gained in popularity the use of absinthe. Okay. Um, and in fact, the at, um, at five o'clock most evenings, it would be called uh, Le Heure Vert, the Green Hour. <laughs> no various aspects of society would stop to go and drink absinthe and they'd sit and drink absinthe and there's these very um ornate spoons that were used so you'd have a measure of absinthe in a glass with this spoon that rested on the top of the glass with slots in it they'd put a lump of sugar or some sugar on this these slotted on this slotted spoon and drip water on it and the water drip through and it would make the absinthe sort of less a bit less strong and everything but um but it was described there was a quote saying absinthe makes you crazy and criminal provokes epilepsy and tuberculosis and has killed thousands of french people it makes a ferocious beast of man a martyr of women and a degenerate of the infant it disorganizes and ruins the family and menaces the future of the country so that was a critic wow. of, of absence at the time so this is basically the defense that was being put because of his alcoholism that he 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 was suffering with as a result of his use of absinthe mainly in the army um they were claiming that it was his alcoholism that well made him angry made him made his mood quite different uh so he shouldn't be found guilty because he was under the influence of of the very strong alcohol there was talk at the time that it was hallucinogenic and because okay. the botanic was but I think more recently it's been proved that no nah, it's not it's just very very strong alcohol okay and and you probably you you may know um that it was banned in quite a lot of places absent it was illegal in most of Europe I think at some point in during that's the, interesting in the 20th century I, I'm not entirely sure what the uh I don't know you can buy it now I think so it was quite a thing in France, drinking absinthe at that time of day. In fact, there are there are famous paintings um, of the time which depict people sitting in high society cafes with their with their absinthe cups and, and things. Anyway, was it like particularly cheap? You know, like gin was really cheap, and you could make it like on the cheap, and it was really easy to get hold of. Was it similar? So was it quite cheap and yeah, easy to make and get hold of? Might be something to look into whether it was particularly cheap or not. Um, mm. yeah, it was just readily available, yeah. I think, for yeah, okay. wherever yeah. you got it. Yeah. But, um, anyway. It turned you into a maniac, apparently. <laughs> well, and that was the, that was the, um, those were the claims that uh, the, the absinthe brought on okay. these sort of epileptic fits and could change the character of a man and um, 
drove him to commit these crimes. Maybe there's some truth in it because the testimony was that, you know, he was quite a different person until he started drinking and then he got violent. Um, I mean, he wouldn't be the only person in history um, to have their personality and their moods affected by alcohol. So it's probably not a million miles from the truth. But then to take that to the extreme of... of yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing making you a bit grumpy. It's another thing using it as a defence for why you kill 10 people. They also discovered as well that during his time in the in the army, he was trained to kill people by slicing their throats and cutting their... Ah, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, because he... I think they realised during the investigations that uh, whoever was doing this knew what they were doing and they were repeating mm. doing the same thing. So... Uh, that's interesting. So, yeah, his training in the army, the exposure to absinthe in the army, sent him back to France a broken man. It did, didn't it? Anyway, um, he is found guilty, unsurprisingly. But yeah, well, I'm quite glad to be honest. <laughs> according to the um, according according to the, uh, the the YouTube video, real stories, the French. Jack the Ripper. Interestingly, the uh, the jury though didn't find him guilty of the murders of Julie Robert, Flor Marg, Henry Marg, and Marie Baudou. They found him not guilty of, of those crimes, but they did find him guilty of the attempted murder of Madame Medi. Maybe it's because that there were actual witnesses to the to the crime there, whereas. Wow, okay. Really, apart from the evidence they found in his apartment or whatever. That's as I say, that's according to the um the true lives. Sorry, that's according to the true crime video on YouTube, real stories. Uh that, wow. that they depict that. Nevertheless, that's bonkers. It, yeah. Yeah, they didn't actually find him guilty of, of the actual murders, but of the attempted murder. Nevertheless, it was enough to sentence him to death. So the trial didn't last very long. I think it was over on the 27th or 28th of June. It only lasted two or three days. On the 24th of July, he was taken from the prison where he was guillotined. And uh, that was it. So he was just 34 at that time when he he was um, executed. So that is the story of Joseph Philippe who killed at least four people there. They think at least half a dozen others and potentially a lot more people. I can't believe they didn't find him guilty of those murders, though. If that was today, they absolutely would have done, wouldn't they? Because I guess there would have been DNA evidence and things like that would have linked to CCTV, (laughs) phone (laughs) footage and uh, GPS tracking and things like that. But exactly, they'd have known his phone pinging off all the towers and things at the time and all that. Yeah. Um, On murderpedia.org, where there is another reference to this this crime, they don't mention that. Okay. They just say that he was found guilty. And by all accounts, he was he was ready to die. He wanted to die by that stage. I think a lot of it was down to the absinthe and the drink. So that's why he gave up on life when he could no longer get at it. Being in yeah. So. Anyway, that's really interesting. Yeah, there's a little right. story with something we've we've learned there. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. Loads of um, interesting takeaways from that. 
around like serial killers and absinthe <laughs> tattoos. Yeah, tattooing, yeah. Exactly. Party prostitutes. <laughs> really interesting. So as I say, all the information has come from either the YouTube video Real Stories, the French Jack the Ripper, or from murderpedia.org if you look up Joseph Philippe. So there we go. There you go. Thank you very much. That's all right. Excellent work. Yeah, and uh, look forward to the next one. Join us next time when once again... Dad. And daughter do death.